As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our Champions League semi-final review. Yes, Inter Milan are in the final of the European Cup after their Rossoneri neighbours didn't really show up. And it was a glorious night for Man City, whose opponent Real Madrid were pretty underwhelming. So, City and Inter, they're heading to Istanbul, where Haaland and the gang will be Simone Inzaghi's nightmare fuel. Yikes. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who, unlike Jack Grealish, would never drop an F-bomb live on American television. Is that right, Taylor? Maybe you would? Taylor, what going I, I think I would not. Although, in the moment, in the occasion, and also when you can't hear anything being asked of you, that seemed to be a recurring thing with Jack Grealish's post-match interview, was him saying, what? Because I think the... Yeah. It was a bit too rowdy, but at least he got the the uh, the curse in there as well. I appreciated Kate Abdo frantically throwing to a different network for coverage because they had to to change stations, and then yeah. also apologizing for the obscenity at the same time. It was. It- Excellence in broadcasting. It was excellent all round, Taylor. We should meant, we should spend a couple minutes on CBS because I think it's worth doing as well. Oh, for sure. Um, and I don't I don't mean that sarcastically. I think no. she handled that really well. Agreed. I loved loved Patrice Evra <laughs> making an appearance wearing Manchester United colors. That felt very deliberate and made me love him all the more. Uh, I enjoyed. I tweeted this at the San Siro when they all just sort of. It wasn't a planned thing. They all just sort of stopped talking to look around because the atmosphere was so great. Moments like that, I think, are what makes CBS so great, that they're willing to kind of yeah. have those somewhat chaotic moments because those tend to become the iconic moments. They do indeed. Let's get into it, but not before introducing a man who's wearing his finest black turtleneck and blazer in tribute to a coach who didn't overthink it. Joe Lowry, looking sharp today. Hello. Let's go. <laughs> Pep did not overthink it. He said as much... Basically, before the game, I think he was asked in maybe a match day minus one press conference, and he's like, don't worry, guys, I'm not going to overthink it. Like, he said it. He knows the bit. He's in on it. He's become aware of of what's going on. I think he's been there for a while now. Mm. Man, City were so good. City were so good. Maybe even better than CBS's coverage, which I do generally enjoy. Ryan, uh, I thought you were going to lead me in with the 2026 World Cup logo. 
I don't know if you guys saw this. It, it's it's going to be great for people who love the number twenty six. Uh, I think it's that's the that's the demographic for this logo. Yeah. Um, but I, I'd rather be uh, sort of involved in a pep discussion than a logo discussion. It is a stacked logo, literally a two on top of a six, Joe, with a World Cup in the middle. Uh, congratulations to the agency who probably paid a lot of money for that. I'd say, yeah. Graphic cool. design is their passion, right? Come on. It is indeed. I look, I look forward to the ridiculously over the top and unnecessary explainer of like. The two in this font symbolizes America's foundation, while the six in this font symbolizes the future. There's always those way too elaborate explainers of graphics that no one needs because you could just make them great and then we would enjoy them right away instead of having to have them mm. spoon-fed explained to us. The two stacked on top of the six signifies the stacks of cash that we're making from this tournament. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that gets said in the uh, fine print. They don't right. say that one as out loud. Oh, Small I have font. the fine prints in Comic Sans. That'll really turn things <laughs> off over the edge for me for that one. Um, yeah, that, that was fun, seeing the World Cup logo reveal, which apparently had a a massive party with dignitaries flown in from all around the world and original Ronaldo was there to unveil was the whole thing just for FIFA the logo is a non-profit <laughs> <laughs> like I think about those all the time FIFA is the the football equivalent of like the fundraiser party where they spend more than they make from the fundraiser because it's the fancy dinner with all the fancy accoutrement and the decorations and the party bags and at the end of the day we raised negative twelve dollars for whatever cancer we're trying to fight or something like that it's great good stuff fifa good stuff. yeah it, it did get me thinking like i was watching carolyn carl's instagram stories earlier today and no no disrespect disrespect to her she's great but she flew in for it and i was thinking how many people how many air miles have contributed to an event where they revealed a two on top of a six uh i didn't mm-hmm. quite understand the whole rigmarole around it but they're... i do look forward to them then telling us about how we need to do more to combat global warming or whatever their yeah. next initiative will be as they fly jets into the next place to uh issue that press release yeah i i am on fire with my fifa cynicism let's talk about <laughs> happier things like i don't know man city being the best team in the world yeah oh, let's talk I about don't like this things. world i don't like this world anymore yeah we're going to talk about a sports wars team which has had a, a, a suspended european uh, ban <laughs> enacted on it and is going into the champions league final wonderful stuff before we get to the games though i would like to talk about the cbs coverage because i hmm. saw some some people saying like some people from the uk saying they were jealous they don't get the cbs coverage and i was like really are you and then i thought about it and yeah it is actually great like the, the the chemistry this this team has, and we've spoken about it before. I think we've used the term controlled chaos, and it it really works for them. Like that moment you mentioned, Taylor Jack Jack Grealish casually dropping an F bomb live on the CBS Big Boy Channel, and then seconds later, Kate Abbott saying, "We've got to say goodbye on it. Go over to Paramount Plus." And yeah. like it, it almost felt like she'd be, be given the job, but like random people walking onto the set. She said Patrice Evra walking on in a red suit and saying. So I think Carragher said, why are you dressed in red? And he said, I'm a United legend. Yeah. And he, I don't know what was going on in his head, but it was a crazy conversation in which he swore several times as well. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and also wasn't on mic for the first part yeah. of it. As Kate Abdo kept saying, can we get him on a mic? Can someone give him a mic? We need him to be audible. Yeah. I like how Kate Abdo is like the babysitter. Like she's the well, one who knows, hey, uh, Jack, you got to talk into the mic, dude. Otherwise, yeah. no one's going to be able to hear you and this is going to be bad TV. So I think she is. And I think... She handles it really well yeah. because everyone else is so clearly like 
they were a strong, do you know who I am energy. And not in a, like, I'm getting out of a parking ticket, do you know who I am. But just more of a, like, Mika Richards doesn't care if he goes 10 seconds over yelling goal into the microphone when they need to cut to commercial. And so I think because of that, there is a predictable unpredictability. And I think she can sort of flow off of that uh, better than, she, than she's been able to maybe in other broadcasts at other times. So I think this one does really suit her. And I think the chemistry of the, the, the three male co-hosts and then the people that they bring on. Peter Schmeichel just coming in out of nowhere to be like, I'm involved, right, guys? Like, totally <laughs> forgot Peter Schmeichel was around. Uh, so, yeah, I really – I do enjoy that. And then I think at the same time they're able to punctuate with really good analysis. Thierry Henry especially yeah. uh, breaking down goals and what strikers are doing or not doing or what sets Benzema apart. All that type of analysis I think is is really valuable and really engaging. Yeah, definitely. I think they balance it really well. I think some criticize saying it's just, you know, make Mika Richards laugh is the whole object of the thing. And there is that aspect to it. But that conversation after the Inter Milan Milan game, Taylor, with between Omri and Romelu Lukaku post-match. I don't know if you saw that. It's on, I'm listening, mm-hmm. if you haven't seen it, it's a good 10-minute clip, which is on the CBS YouTube at the moment. It's almost like Omri's doing therapy with Lukaku live on air. It's incredible. Sort of going through the the difficulties he had uh, during and post-World Cup and Thierry Omri talking about how he was texting him every day during it and giving him this support and sort of like making make, made the point of how meaningful it is for him to have ended up in a Champions League final this season. It was just really, really good television and it's come from the looseness. And like, you know, Patrice Ever and Jack Grealish wandering on and then giving hugs to all the players who are walking past. They've got this looseness which allows them the license to have these incredible moments, as you said, Taylor, those magic moments which are created out of nothing almost. Indeed. And and, and those are cool. The connections are cool. It's nice to see. I think it was... Was it Del Piero that like Phil Foden was trying to get to like kick around with him at one point when they when he was doing some analysis on the touchline? So I think some of that rapport and some of that banter is pretty good. And we should add, uh, Kate Abdo is not just the like oh my boys sort of like <laughs> matronly character. She's capable of her own levels of chaos. Gr- Graham, mm. were he here, would be quick to remind us of the time that she complimented a prize fighter's father by saying like you've got some good sperm there, which was yeah. an odd thing to say to a parent of a person, but that was her that was her. Approach. I think she fits in really well with the uh, the lovely chaos of the CBS coverage. Yeah, they showed a nice clip of Mika Richards getting drenched by the uh, sprinklers, and then Mika Richards had a VT of her making mistakes, which they pulled up, which was amazing. <laughs> like they they've been literally plotting things against each other on this show. It like does seem that way. like saying, "Oh, welcome to Fox Sports." Oops, I mean it's CBS. That kind of stuff. Very funny. Very. I'm assuming stuff. I'm assuming that's producers who sort of are like poking a little bit. Like, hey, yeah. she got you last time. Don't you want us to compile a video of her this time? Yes, yeah. I do. And away they go. It's good. But I suppose the TLDR here, listener, is that uh, we as American soccer viewers are lucky for the coverage we have. NBC and CBS both doing a very good job in very different ways. I would say. What is it over in England, right? Like, wh- why do English people feel that way? I think it's just it's more fun. I think ultimately, uh, well, NBC maybe not more fun, but like it's a very, I think NBC coverage is a much more palatable version of what they do on Sky Sports, where you've got Graham Souness and Roy Keane being very grumpy. Not impressed. Basically taking themselves far too seriously is what they do on the UK coverage most of the time. And like the BT Sport who do Champions League, it's a bit lighter because they've got people like Peter Crouch who can have a a joke with themselves and Mika Richards and, you know, I suppose he's not on their Champions League coverage, but he's on other coverage of theirs. It's... It basically, I think the tone Taylor has done very well in the States and it's aimed at the right kind of audience. So um, UK viewers who are used to things being a bit more straight and a bit more, um, you know, proper, uh, appreciate the fact that 
this coverage shows them having a laugh. And they're given license that they wouldn't be given, Joe, in the UK, I'd say. Yeah, and I think there's, I don't, I'm not really sure how we got onto this kind of thing, but I, I think there's a pretty clear trend with other soccer coverage folks around the United States of, of trying to do something similar, right? I think about maybe the best example that's come out of nothing since CBS started to do this stuff is Apple's MLS coverage. You've got the the studio show and you've got, you know, two players that are buddies and Sasha Kleschen and Bradley Wright Phillips. And, and the hope is to try to capture some of that energy. And I, I don't know for sure, because I haven't watched a lot of that show, how well that's coming off, but I think there is generally a trend, certainly in the United States, and I think other countries would be wise to, to go down this road as well, to make it more fun. Like, people want to be entertained. Like, they, they want to see good analysis. They want to see good insight and, and to listen to people that know what they're talking about. But having some actual banter and having some fun conversations and jokes along the way, I think, makes a lot of this stuff much more engaging. Indeed. Good time to be a US soccer fan, not least because of patreon.com slash Total Soccer Show as well. Great to head there, listener, if you want more from the TSS gang, including Graham, who's on vacation in Italy, but still filing on Patreon. Release the tapes, Graham. Release the karaoke <laughs> tapes. That's all I'll say <laughs> at this point. Uh, shall we get into the Champions League action? Let's start off with Wednesday evening's events at the Eastlands. Manchester City for Real Madrid. Nothing. 5-1. Man City go through to the final, their second final in three years. Joe, I think City, particularly in that first half, were outstanding. I think it might have been the best City we've ever seen. Would you go along those lines or am I being too hyperbolic with that statement? I think it's up there for sure. Like this is one of the greatest halves of soccer I've seen in a long time. Certainly one of the greatest performances I've seen from Manchester City. The reason why I'm not like jumping all the way on that is I think about even the Arsenal game from just a few weeks ago that was really, really good for Man City. They've had a number of incredible games this year, but you can't argue with the stakes, right? If you want to combine performance with the, the importance of a match, yeah, that Arsenal game was important, but there was more time. This was a do-or-die game for City. 1-1 after the first leg on aggregate, coming into the second leg, playing at home. The stakes don't get much higher. There's only one game, really, where they're higher <laughs> higher than this game. So it, it was a, an incredible performance. Also, I'm just stuck on Ryan demanding Graham to release the tapes one day after saying he wasn't going to peer pressure Graham to release the tapes. No, we're I'm not enjoying about peer this pressure. We're, we're never going to do that. We, we, we wouldn't, in our wildest dreams, peer pressure Graham into releasing the karaoke tapes that we all want to massively <laughs> see. And, you know, that's it. That's what I'm saying. Right. Okay. Thank you for setting the record straight on that, Ryan. I appreciate it. Ryan has filed like a brief in civil court. He will be taking Graham to court to make this happen, yeah. but no pressure. No pressure. Right, it's on not. Graham it's at not all. peer pressure. It's not. It's no. not like that. It's completely no. different. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, it's legal pressure. <laughs> some G-men are going to come and seize his phone in the next couple of days if he doesn't comply. Sorry, Joe. Continue. Um, City were really good. I mean, that's not breaking any new ground here. They scored two goals in the first half, both from Bernardo Silva, both off of really nice attacking intricate sorts of sequences. Then Akanji gets a goal in the 76th minute that that aggressively belongs to Edward Militao, but it does maybe brush him, and he said as much after the game. And then Alvarez finishes things off in the 91st minute. But this one felt really, to me, and I didn't watch this live, so I knew what was happening, and maybe that influenced how I thought about it a little bit. It felt really close to over after that second Silva goal. Like, Real Madrid had showed nothing in the first half. The one time that Vinicius Jr. got free... In behind the back line, he wasn't even really free because you've got Kyle Walker like trailing him aggressively and winning that challenge in behind City's back line. In every phase, City were really, really good. Real Madrid struggled in so many different ways. I, I thought this is one of the better performances I've seen from a Pep Guardiola team. Agreed. I don't think Real Madrid were were like necessarily very good, obviously. I don't think they were like horrifically poor. The coverage 
did seem to be very much like like Madrid just not up for this one. Madrid never got out. Uh, they were too passive. They were they sat back too much. They were too sloppy. And some of that is true. But uh, Joe, we often have the conversation about was this city being good, uh, or like or like a team being good, a team being poor, or some right. combination thereof. And the answer is almost always some combination thereof. I feel like this is a game where City were just too good. That they really did, and not just the talent gap, but also the the little adjustments that Pep made from the last game to this yes. game, the way they executed the game plan, the way they were just completely dominant. And it was clear to me that the game plan was, we know they're going to play on the break, so defend the break really well. Don't let them get those clear looks, and Real Madrid never did. But other than that, we are playing our game. We are not bending to what they want to do. We're going to play how we want to play, and we are going to find the opportunities. And I could not believe how, how good they looked, even with how strong City started the first leg, that they were so comprehensively dominant that there were no moments of like, oh, there's the Real Madrid poking through, like they can still do their thing. It just was completely limited. Uh, and then it's later in the game, but it was the 68th minute is where I, I genuinely like stopped actively paying attention to this game. I still watched it, but it's 68th minute, Madrid are in possession, Benzema tries to do something, the ball gets poked away. And City spring a counterattack, and you, you can see, I think it's three City players in position to counter, and then they have three more sort of trailing behind, but aggressively closing that gap. Benzema loses the ball, and just sort of head down, like frustrated. Uh, Vinny Jr. does the same, and the Madrid team all just kind of turn and casually jog back. And in that moment, it was just it was just very clear that the mentality of Real Madrid was like, yeah, that figures. That's how this game is going. We can't get anything going. Ugh, so frustrating. And it just became very reactive, very frustrated. I think there were some some housery moments after the second goal, but it did seem coming out of halftime, that's when I was waiting to see if there would be any sort of response, and it really felt like somewhat damage control, and then they go on to concede two more. So for Real Madrid, I thought not a great game, but just sort of... Completely outplayed by Manchester City on the night. Taylor, you mentioned some of the adjustments that mm-hmm. Manchester City made. And for me, that was always going to be the most interesting angle of this game. Because it was hard to imagine this playing out in any other pattern other than City dominating the ball at home in front of their fans. Real Madrid sitting back on the break like they did in the first game. Maybe even a bit deeper because of how you know threatening City are in a must-win game. What what adjustments did you see from Pep Guardiola? Mm-hmm. Because if the pattern was going to be roughly the same, and it was, it, it played out very similar to the first game in terms of who was controlling the ball and even where they were controlling it. What changed from Man City? What did you see? Because I've got a few thoughts, but I'm curious. Uh, the the biggest thing, and credit to the uh, to the color commentator for this one, whose name I don't remember, uh, for pointing it out initially. Uh, Gundogan and De Bruyne uh, were very much central in the first leg, as they are want to be. They're central midfielders, but they took up much more central positions. And here they spread wider out, which gave you potential overloads, two v one overloads out wide. But oftentimes, what that meant was that Real Madrid's midfielders would man mark them, and you had this huge gap through the middle. And then you would have John Stones carrying the ball through, sometimes Rodri carrying the ball, sometimes Manuel Akanji. But it opened up this huge amount of space that City could then attack. And then when players would close down or step to them, that's when the gaps started to open up. And it felt like Manchester City did a better job of making uh, Real Madrid react and pulling them out of position. The first Bernardo Silva goal is a great example of this. Tony Cruz has to run to like five different spots in about 10 seconds. And as a result, when you're doing that, you are, by definition, reacting to things. You're playing reactive defense, and you're no longer 
proactively looking at what's going on around you. And Bernardo Silva just sort of very sneakily, very cleverly, but it's not it's not a massive effort. He just kind of keeps adjusting and making sure that no one is really paying attention to him. It's credit to Kevin De Bruyne for threading that pass. But the way they're able to sort of pull Real Madrid out and then attack some of those gaps, I think, was a massive difference maker. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we want to dig into this game a little bit more. There's some stats we want to go through and maybe talk a bit more about Madrid and maybe this being the end of an era. Back shortly. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Uh, as we mentioned, Joe, in the first half, uh, the first segment of this podcast, it was a pretty devastating performance from Manchester City, and it just seemed like Real Madrid didn't really give them a game at all. The, the, the stats yeah. from the first half, we had that one about nine of Man City's starting 11 had a shot in the first half. Real Madrid had one shot in the first half. Real Madrid completed 13 passes in the first 15 minutes. City completed 124 in the wow. same period of time. It's The pattern of play I kept noticing was Real Madrid sitting back basically on the edge of their box, and like Rodri... And John Stones being sort of completely free about 25 yards out. They were just goading those two basically into taking a long shot. They seemed pretty confident in the shape they had at that point. But also, it was very negative of them to be doing such a thing. I, 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 what, did, what did you make of that? It just, it, just, it just bugged me that they were very un-Real Madrid in those moments. Yeah, they, they did not have a lot of success pressing high up the field and containing Manchester City in those spaces. City tweaked their build-up shape a bit in this game. They built out of a back four mostly in, in the first game of, of this uh, of this tie. And in this match, they built much more out of a back three. Real Madrid tried to press them, and, and you'd have, at times, a front three with Benzema as the nine, Vinny to his left, and Rodrigo to his right. Other times, Rodrigo would tuck in almost like a number 10, and Vinicius Jr. and Benzema would press that way. And it felt like no matter how they structured themselves, City played through it. You know, it wasn't it wasn't totally flawless from City in those moments, but Madrid couldn't contain them higher up the field. And when you when you can't do that, and when you can't control the ball, and when you can't wrestle, you know, any of the flow of the game back from your opponent, you don't have a lot of other options other than to sit deep. And and to be honest, in the early stages of this game, I know I talked about how it felt like City had this thing wrapped up by the 37th minute when Silva scores. But early on, when City were kind of settling for some of those longer shots, trying to find a way through Real Madrid's block and not having a lot of success. Between that and Thibaut Courtois standing on his head for like the first 18 minutes of this game or whatever it was, two massive saves on Erling Haaland, it felt like, okay, this is what's going to happen, right? It's going to be the same story that we've seen over and over again where Real Madrid, you know, don't have the ball. They don't maybe even play that well, but Vinny's going to get one on the break and and he's going to win that battle against Kyle Walker because Thibaut Courtois is going to win this game for them, essentially. So that's where it felt like it was going. Credit to Manchester City, though for really ratcheting things up as the game went on. Really, I mean, I think they did a lot of good stuff from the start. And Taylor, you got to a lot of this before the break. You know, a a couple of different city figures 
gave some very helpful quotes, I think, that revealed what they were trying to do in this match. And then a lot of it played out on the field, just like they said. So Bernardo Silva said from minute one, we put pressure on their defense. We pushed them back and created lots of chances with our people, the energy that we felt, the momentum that we created helped a lot. So Bernardo's talking about, you know, we wanted to be aggressive. We want to put pressure on their defense. I think he's probably talking about their back line in particular in that quote. Pep Guardiola said the difference between the first leg and the second is that over there, talking about Madrid, we put one of our number eights deeper and today we pushed him forward. You know, over and over again, like these quotes from City people are talking about how they were more aggressive with their positioning, how they were more aggressive in trying to put pressure on Real Madrid's back line. Manuel Akanji talked about this after the game. He talked to us, talking about Pep, about winning this game. It's not about doing anything crazy. It's only one game that we needed to win. We should play our game. We shouldn't be scared. It wasn't like City coming out and, and completely reinventing the wheel. Like, Pep is right. He didn't he didn't make any massive changes. The change that he made, and, and Akanji is talking about not doing anything wild, it was simple. It was them pushing their players a little bit higher, them being a little bit more aggressive. Taylor, you called out you know, the, the 210s to Bruyne and Gundogan being a bit wider. I think that's a great catch. They were pulling... Real Madrid's midfielders around and creating an advantage. Ryan, you're talking about Stones and Rodri being free at times. Madrid created that like 4v3 advantage in midfield. For, for Excuse me, City created that 4v3 advantage in midfield. Madrid had Valverde and Modric and Kroos, and City had Stones and Rodri at the base and Gundogan and, and De Bruyne up top. So they almost always had a one-player advantage in those spaces between that and the wingers being more aggressive. Like how many times in the first leg did we see Jack Grealish receive wide on the left side and just come back? Like, just run back into midfield, lay the ball off, and do that again. We saw that over and over again in the first leg. In this game, five minutes in, Jack Grealish is running in behind. He's getting in behind Carvajal. He's getting a ball into the box. The 55th minute, he draws a foul from Carvajal. That's a yellow card. The 75th minute, drives at Camavinga, draws a foul. Yellow card, free kick, Manuel Akanji scores. Like, over and over again, they were more aggressive. You can think about the first goal, even the second goal. You had the eights, or I guess the tens, running into these little seam areas. It's City in possession. It's it's maybe them working the ball wide. At one point for the first goal, it's John Stones that's like basically popping up in the right wing spot. And him being wide stretches the Real Madrid back line so that in this case, I guess it wasn't an eight. It was, it was Bernardo Silva who was initially playing as the winger, but then he can run into the seam. And in the first leg, it would be Carvajal stretched so wide on the, the left side for City, the right side of their back line, and no one would run into the space. Like Gundogan wouldn't make that run in this game, Pep took the shackles off a little bit, encouraged his players to be more aggressive, make those runs, find the seams, take on players 1v1, and, and Madrid, frankly, just couldn't handle it. Yeah, Joe, to, to, to some extent, and to like maybe over, overly simplify, to your point in that first leg, if you had Bernardo Silva, like boots on the chalk, Danny Carvajal went with him, because Gundogan or De Bruyne were just that much more central, what it usually meant was that you'd have to have one of those late arriving runners in Stones or Rodri or whomever, they're then making that run to get the ball where Kevin De Bruyne would have received it in this game. Because Stones is, I think because they're the central midfielders for City of the two eights are higher uh, and then also wider, Stones can then attack space and take players with him. And then that opens up the opportunity for Kevin De Bruyne to be wide open 25 yards from goal. So I think that sort of proactive approach from Pep Guardiola made a massive difference. Then other little adjustments, like we've already been talking about. Um, I think a key thing in the first leg was that they used Gundogan. I think Pep's talked about this as like more facilitating of the build out. So he, he would drop way deeper. I saw Pep say that was because of the grass, which was <laughs> yeah. an interesting thing that I don't quite know what to make of that, but whatever. But, and uh, Fede Valverde would man mark him, would go with him. And it really stymied uh, Man City's possession at times. And in this game, I think 
there was just that little adjustment from Pep of they're probably going to continue to man mark. So now stay higher and stay wider. And that opens up way more space for us to drive into an attack. And I think having John Stones be able to do that, have Rodri be able to do that, that makes a big difference. Those are the tactical things. There's probably much more to discuss. But the other thing that I noted from Pep in the first 30 minutes or so, he is obviously a very emotional manager. You can see his emotions. You can see how into it he gets on the touchline during games. And sometimes I have to believe that can be a negative thing in that if he starts getting really frustrated, if you see him throwing his hands up in the air and not knowing why they didn't score, I think the the crowd can feed off that. I think certainly the players feed off of that. And it felt very deliberate to me that every time City came close in the first 30 minutes and they cut to Pep, you would see him do the like, oh, we came so close face, and then would immediately turn and pick up the crowd. And I think it was very important for Man City that they didn't lose that intensity and they never lost that energy. So Pep Guardiola constantly picking up the crowd. He does it four different times that I saw on replay in the first 30 minutes when shots go wide, when shots go close. He kept upping the intensity from the crowd, and I think the players fed off of that. And there was no sort of... I, I think there was a narrative on Twitter of like, oh, is this going to be the night that uh, Thibaut Courtois just stands on his head and Real Madrid squeak through? And I think there's a reality in which if City started to lose some of that confidence, started to doubt what they were doing, they just lose their intensity. They lose some of that focus. And there are more opportunities for Real Madrid. I think the crowd were up for it. I think Pep was up for it. I think that made the players even more up for it. And they never let down. And there you go. 2-0 at halftime, 4-0 at, at full time. Not a bad result, I would say. Not bad at all. The are oh, we came so close face belongs on TSS out of context on our Discord, by the way. I'll just flag that <laughs> for, for now. Um, so, Joe, three massive weekends coming up for Manchester City. We've got a game against Chelsea this weekend where they'll likely win the league if they win. Well, they will. FA Cup final against Man United the following weekend. Champions League final against Inter Milan the following weekend. Rather than telling me why they can win the treble, Joe... Can you tell me why they can't? What What is going to be the limitations here? Because I can't see any, basically. So Joe, 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 I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy you some time here. Because while, we're, <laughs> while, we're discuss- while Joe is thinking, uh, going back to the CBS, CBS coverage for a moment, I loved that when Jack Grealish was finally able to hear them, uh, Kate Abdo said, I think it was Thierry. No, J- Jamie has now said that if you win this game, there's a 90%, 90% chance that you will win the treble. And Jack Grealish just turned open mouth and stared at him like, why would you do that to us? Like, why? <laughs> why would you say that? What, what am I supposed to do here? I know why. Like he, and he was just like, no, yeah. You know, I mean, it's all games. We got to win. And, you know, we yeah. got to play hard. Like, he gave a very good answer. He did that a couple of times because I think he was also baited into slamming Villa. I think Mika Richards asked him, like, you've got, like, you used to be with Aston Villa and now you're here. And I think Jack Grealish could have poured he, salt he in that wound. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to do, he didn't want to slate Aston Villa his boy no, with there. You could tell yes. that by the way. Yes. Joe, I've so, teed you up with a difficult question yeah. there. Let me try and rephrase. What 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 could be the stumbling points of Manchester City sure. in this treble course? Could is it a player getting injured? Is it overthinking? What Phil Jones coming back into the this? starting 11 for Manchester United Super and winning Phil. it all. Super Phil. <laughs> um no, Ryan, it's a great question and I I I'm glad you asked it. I think about a couple different things. And and the one thing that really seemed to keep Manchester City at bay in this opening stages of this match, at least, was an excellent performance from an opposing goalkeeper. And that is a big factor, especially when the margins are so thin in individual matches. We think about Inter in the Champions League final, one game. We think about Manchester United in the FA Cup final, one game. Like, if a goalkeeper goes on a heater, 
there's not a lot you can do. Erling Holland found good spots in this game. We're not really talking about Erling Holland. I don't think he had a bad game. I, I personally don't. I don't really blame strikers a ton for if they get into good spots and take good shots and the goalkeeper makes good saves. I don't know what you're supposed to do, right? So Holland, I thought was was good in this match. And Courtois erased him for large stretches. So and a, a strong performance from an opposing goalkeeper would go a long way. The other thing is playing maybe an even more disciplined block, right? Taylor, you, you mentioned how initially Real Madrid were man-marking in this game. And that did give City some opportunities to pull them around. If an opposing team sits deeper, stays a bit more compact, maybe more zonal and how they defend... That could make life more difficult for this Man City team. But it's also doing simple things, right? Like opposing teams can't let in a set-piece goal. You know, that that kills you against Man City, who are so lethal in possession. They have to restrict Erling Holland's space. They're going to have to put a lot of pressure on their own goalkeeper. But, Ryan, the reason why this question is so difficult to answer, and there's like at least a partial answer there, is because City are so good. Like, this team has figured out how to harness all of their powers together. And it's it's not that they're invincible, right? Especially in knockout games, anything can happen. But they are clear favorites to get this treble done this season, and they should be because they are very, very obviously the best team on the planet right now. Yeah. Um, I think if we want to be a little pragmatic here, uh, a standard plywood sheet is four foot by eight foot. So eight foot tall will cover the the like height of the goal. You buy what what uh, eight yards by eight feet, so you're going to need... I think six of those, and then you, you you make sure they're well secured to the post. You make sure you switch them at halftime, and I think if you fully cover up the goal with plywood, it will make it difficult for Man City to score. Other than that, I don't really know how you stop this team. I think if you try to man-mark them and frustrate them in their build, maybe that will work. That requires an incredible amount of discipline, but that will work for about 30 minutes. And then I think with the amount of movement and physical training Manchester City have— you're going to tire, you're going to slack off, and one person switching off is all that it will take. You can sit deep. You're sort of inviting that like wave after wave of pressure. I think the team most likely to cause problems is Inter Milan. I think that they are comfortable with the defensive side of the game or, or being more defensive. And I think at the same time, there is a level of housery to some of Inter's players. We saw that in these two legs. We'll talk about them, I'm sure, in just a moment. But I think Inter will be... Of the three that we've talked about, I think the most tricky opponent is my guess. Okay, we will get to them very shortly. Uh, my favorite tweet after this game, and I'm alerting the uh, fire truck of lawyers for this. I'm reporting this tweet, not uh, expressing it as TSS opinion. It said, City looks special. Testament to what can be achieved with £2 billion, a manager with an offshore account, a suspended two-year ban from European competition, and 115 charges of financial irregularity. Oh boy. Uh, so there is that aspect of things. Uh, we'll, we'll probably park that one there. But Taylor, just a note on Real Madrid themselves. There's been an... Uh, a narrative of this being an end of an era. Uh, Jonathan Liu in The Guardian actually suggested that Man City have ushered this end of an era in in one single evening. Modric looking all of his 37 years old. Benzema, what's he, 35 at this point. Even questions of Ancelotti as whether he stays on where he can go from here with a Copa del Rey under his belt and nothing else this season, which by Real Madrid standards is not uh, not the one. So what do you think about that? Is I mean, we're, we're going to see Jude Bellingham potentially coming in and a, a transform midfield, for example, for Real Madrid. Does this feel like a bookend for you, or are we just seeing some some slight modifications next season? So I think uh, things can be two things. I think that there will probably be a reaction to this game, specifically in the transfer market for Real Madrid this summer. 
Uh, Carlo Ancelotti has a year left on his deal. He has come out and said, I'm not leaving. Uh, there was some speculation that maybe if this didn't go well, he would be asked to leave or not invited back. Uh, but it sounds like he wants to stay. So we're not getting that level of turnover necessarily. What I think is happening is that this is more of a media narrative because I think most people have been waiting for Real Madrid to get knocked out to then say this season has been a failure because they're not really competing in La Liga. Uh, but I think it's it's an immediate like, well, this would be a failure, except maybe they're going to win the Champions League again. And I don't want to be the person who preemptively said they're having a failure of a season and then they win another Champions League. I think, again, the commentators, even in like the 70th minute, were sort of like, well, you know, we've seen them come back before. You never know. Like, I don't think anybody wanted to write them off for fear of looking foolish now that they are out. I think all of those articles that people had been sort of slowly writing over the last few months and getting ready are now hitting uh, newsstands and being published. And I think we're seeing a lot of the, here's what's going wrong, this isn't working, this isn't working. But, you know, last week uh, when we talked about Real Madrid, I was really impressed by a lot of what they did and their fight and their defensive tenacity. I don't know why you don't start Rudiger in this game. I thought he did a really good job of annoying people. And I think, like... Praising him to then look at this team and say, like, yeah, they need a full rebuild. I think that would be a step too far. I think that they need competition for places. I think you could see some of the sloppiness as the game went on. And it didn't feel like they had difference makers coming off the bench to really turn things around. So that might be a wake-up call that, yeah, we got to get more depth. We need maybe a few more Galacticos or semi-Galacticos to compete. But I don't think this is a tear-it-all-down sort of situation, in my opinion. All right, that sounds like a very measured uh, answer to my question. Thank you very much, Taylor Rocco. A very good evening for Manchester City. A devastating one for Real Madrid. Devastating one for those of us who bet the 1-0, 2-0, 3-0 multiple correct score market to see Julian Alvarez get a goal in garbage time. But then's the breaks, I suppose. Let's take a quick break ourselves. When we come back, let's head to that Milan derby and figure out how Inter got their place in the final. Back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. Let's turn our attention to the San Siro. We had a derby della Madonnina between Inter Milan and AC Milan, of course, with Inter getting the 1-0 advantage on Did the we evening. Three- Did we? <laughs> like, I'm just saying, for it being a derby, that there was a, a not as much like intensity to the way that game played out, I have to say. Yeah, that's fair enough. Latero Martinez making a difference with that single goal in the night. But you, you're quite right, Taylor. Milan, Taylor, had 57% possession in this game. But from what I could see, they didn't know what to do with that possession in any meaningful way. It's, it's like the season... It was, you know how Ralph Wiggum, you know, his heart breaks in real time when they slow down the uh, the footage of the of the Valentine being ripped. It was like yes. you saw the season falling apart in slow time, yes. in, slow, in slow motion in this one game for, for Milan. 
So here is an extended history analogy that I hope will end up making sense. As I understand it, uh, part of the slowness with which the Civil War was conducted was because Union generals did not want to make a mistake early on. And so they were very slow. I forget who McClellan was maybe the one. There was one general who was like very slow in his preparation, very slow to move troops, very slow to do everything because he wanted everybody in the exact right place at the exact right time. And so it was all a lot of micromanaging. And I think it took Abraham Lincoln being like, do something for things to fully escalate. And it felt to me the way Milan played this game, like they were so concerned about making a mistake and leaving themselves vulnerable when they were attacking, at least in the first half or so, that it just, everything was slower. And they were, it, it, it felt like they kept being like, okay, we've got everybody where we need. Okay, now we can attack. And it just, it didn't feel like they had that sort of that lightning aggression that I think you need if you want to blitz an opponent and catch them out and make them uncomfortable early and often, as we saw with Man City. It felt like Milan were very aware that if they got overextended, they left themselves vulnerable. And I understand why on the tactics cam you could see that a few different times they left themselves in a 3v3 at the back or even sometimes two defenders to three inter attackers. And if things had turned differently, that could have gone very poorly. But it was still just very slow, very deliberate, very predictable. I think individual performers tried to change that, especially in the second half. I think Sandro Tanali just decided, fine, I'll do it myself and would hmm. occasionally carry the ball 80 yards. But for the most part, fart, part it felt very slow from, uh, from Milan. And by contrast, I think Inter were just happy to sort of sit back and be like, okay, if you guys want to do that, and then took control of the game as it went on, but it didn't feel like Inter were ever truly uncomfortable because of their uh, cross-city counterparts. Uh, quick question there, Taylor. You mentioned the tactics cam a couple of times now. Mm-hmm. Do you second screen it or do you watch it separately afterwards on the tactics cam? A little bit of both, but usually I have it on second screen. It's about seven seconds behind, I think. I was going to so say, does this sync up very well? I'd imagine it wouldn't. No, you got to mute. Uh, or you can uh, pause your TV and then do it. But it's nice to watch live and then be like, wait, what happened? And then be able to look down and, uh, uh, and see what's going on in the broader picture. That's good. Another wonderful benefit of CBS. Please yeah. give us some money, Paramount. Um, Joe, <laughs> what did you make of this, uh, of this game? Did, did you, I, I didn't expect Milan to come back in this game at all nope. and was evidently proven right in, into just far superior. Well deserved. Yeah, I think... A lot of our preview held up really well for this game. We did a preview over on the Patreon. Talked about how after going up 2-0 in the first leg for Inter, they didn't really need to extend. They didn't need to overextend, certainly. They did press a bit early on. They were trying to be aggressive and, and trying to establish some something of their identity in this game. But very quickly after that, they started to drop and defend in this 5-3-2 shape that they're very good at. Um, but really, you know, Taylor, you asked earlier if it was City being good or Real Madrid being bad and think it sort of fell more on City being good. I think that's probably right. In this game, we can ask the same question for the two Milan teams. I think this was AC Milan being uh, dreadful, right? Yeah. I, I thought they were ponderous and slow and so many of the things that you described, Taylor, I totally agree with. I don't know how much of it I put on tactics, frankly, from Pioli, who I, I've not been like you know overwhelmingly impressed with. And yes, I know they won the Serie A title neither, last year. Neither have the Milan board. Don't worry. Yeah, about I mean, <laughs> you watch this team. They're an unimpressive team. They won the title last year, and I think I got some flack on this show for saying how like they're they're not particularly impressive. Like Inter played better soccer than them last year. There was a number of teams in Serie A that did ultimately didn't matter, and and Milan won't care about what I'm saying about them. But in this game, I think some of how they built the squad really came back to hurt. You know, who who in this 11 is going to be the one to break a team down, right? Is it is it going to be Brahim Diaz, who's much more of a connector, 
like somebody you want, you know, when there's somebody bearing down on him deep in deep in your own half, maybe, or, or somebody you can string the ball together to a creator. He's not a pure through ball threading number 10. Is it going to be Rafael Leal, who's back in this game, probably wasn't fully fit. His best stuff is running on the break, right? He, his one real dangerous moment in this game, and he did have one, you know, comes in the 37th minute after Inter don't collect a loose ball high up the field. It, it's kind of a, a bouncing around a bit. And Inter, really one of the only times in this match where they're stretched, happens right here. Leao sees that they're over, that sees that Inter stretched, overpowers Darmian, drives into the box, and, and can't quite get a shot on target. That was the really the one reminder of his goal threat, and it came in a moment where the game was stretched, and Inter did not let the game become stretched. So Rafael Leao is not the guy that's going to really you know be the, the one to win you a game against a low block consistently. Olivier Giroud needs service that never really came in this game. Macias over on the right wing is is not a, a Champions League semifinal caliber starting winger. Like, they just didn't have it. You know, the, they don't have the personnel. And we talked about this. They don't have the personnel to thrive against a team that's going to be more compact. They want to play on the break. They want to play in transition. And as soon as you take that away from them, you know, outside of an occasional moment of brilliance from Leao, they're, they're not remarkable. And, and they were certainly that in this game. Yeah, despite Milan's shortcomings, though, Taylor, you've got to give Inter credit here. You know, three un- three unanswered goals over two legs against their biggest rival in a European Cup semi-final is pretty amazing work from them. So what what do we highlight as their key strengths going into the final? I mean, the defence seemed pretty solid in this one, for example. Do we see them maybe, I don't know, trying to sneak an early goal in the final and then just relying on that solid defence? No. <laughs> I mean, mostly <laughs> just because I think Inter going out against City and trying to be aggressive is as likely to lead to Inter conceding as it is to Inter scoring. And I won't be surprised if it's Inter sitting back and trying to basically weather those opening 10 minutes, then hope for like that they can exert some control, de-escalate things, and start to dictate the tempo and the pace of this game. So I think we're going to get... Uh, a good amount of dark arts in, in this final would be my guess. In addition to a very good tacti- tactical plan and a very good ab- approach from both managers, I think we're going to see Inter players trying to disrupt the flow, so maybe taking longer to take throw-ins, to take goal kicks. Uh, if they go down to get treatment, taking their time to get back up. I mentioned it earlier. Cherby has the stamp on Tanali in this game that is... It's an interesting one. that I, I mean, it's definitely a deliberate stamp. But it's interesting in the sense that we live in the VAR age, and it's been a while since I feel like I've seen a deliberate, violent act not be immediately caught and punished with a red card. And it's because it's a scrum, it's in the heat of the moment as the cross is coming in, and I think there's plausible deniability there. And just that moment stands out to me as, if they are figuring out how to like kick people and step on people and not get carded for it and not get VAR looking after them... That's a thing I fully expect. So I think we're going to see some physicality, some cheap shots here and there. But I think that's kind of what you have to do to disrupt the way City wants to play and to take them out of that rhythm. It's why Pep, I think, kept picking up the crowd and picking up the players and wanting that intensity. I think Inter, by contrast, will be happy to take a lot of the energy out of the game and then try to do what they do, which is score goals through those that front two. I'm guessing it's going to be Jekko and Martinez again. Maybe it's Lukaku starting, but I've been impressed by both Jekko and Martinez. The effort in their running, both on uh, in attack and defense, but also just hassling people, hassling defenders, making their lives uncomfortable. I think that's what it's all about for Inter, is being okay with discomfort and not sort of immediately panicking when City send five attackers into the box. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, that could instill panic in the best of teams. Uh, Joe, this interside, despite, you know, they've, they've done incredibly well to get to this final, but they've got to be one of the least fancy Champions League finalists in recent history. I was trying to think of a bigger underdog in recent years. The only one I could think of was Chelsea in 2012 when they came up against Bayern Munich. They finished, what, sixth or seventh in the Premier League that year. They had Roberto Di Matteo coming in as a, as a caretaker manager. They weren't fancied at all against Bayern Munich. And, well, it happened for them. So there's there's a glimmer of hope there for for Inter, but it does seem like a difficult matchup for them, which is a very basic thing to say on this podcast. No, it is like there there's a reason why they're heavy underdogs coming into this game. It's funny. I'm looking at the Champions League bracket right now for the last 16. Man, it, I, I forgot how stacked one side was and how light the other side was. Like it was Napoli on one side as the favorite. And then it was Liverpool, Real Madrid. I mean, at that time, Liverpool weren't, weren't anything terribly special. But those two teams, Manchester City, PSG, and Bayern Munich. Like, if you want star power and an overall quality, it's very clear which side is, is the more dangerous one. It's going to be so fitting and, and so perfect when Inter Milan come and win this thing after City did all the hard work to get here. And Inter Milan, Onana just has a great game and, and all the things that we talked about earlier for reasons why City could could fall. Taylor goes out, you know, hired by Milan to go, it's hired by Inter, excuse me, to go and build the plywood wall. Like all that stuff's going to happen. Inter Milan are going to do this thing. It's going to be difficult for them, right? Like City have the advantage. There's a reason why, you know, Real Madrid sat deep. There's a reason why teams are are, going to bunker when they play Manchester City because they don't have the individual quality to go at them 1v1 sort of all over the field. So they want to compress space. They want to try to frustrate the opposition, force those long shots. I expect Inter to do that. At the same time, the big thing that I'm, I'm curious about from this game is, yeah, Inter have some of that housery and Taylor, I love that you brought that up at Cherubi and all that stuff. They're also super intricate and, and thoughtful in possession. Like they have some of the, the most engaging, uh, intricate kind of buildup movements that I've seen from any team in, in Europe this season. They'll move, you know, in, in buildup, they usually play out of this 5-3-2 this shape, 3-5-2 shape. In build-up, they'll move the right center back over to right back. They'll push Dumfries as the right wing back up to right wing. They'll move Martinez a bit wider on the left side, and they're in a 4-3-3. And then you know you blink, and all of a sudden, it's Bastoni in midfield, or a Cherby stepped into midfield as the number six, and all the midfielders have pushed up or wider or deeper. They're constantly moving and shifting and rotating, and they're really good at it. Like Their, their attack is excellent. They have one of the best, I think, progressive midfield groups and, and one of the best attacking tandems and service even from, from the right wing in Dumfries. They're elites at all of those things. I wonder how aggressive they will be. I don't think they should be particularly aggressive, but you know, if you don't go and try to throw a couple of punches, I think you really run the risk of of being overwhelmed, just like Real Madrid were in this game by Manchester City. So, I mean, the defensive game plan has to be right on. The execution, more importantly, has to be right on. And, and maybe we see Inter try to open up a bit and say, hey, you know, we're the best possession team in Italy right now. Like, we're, we're going to try to play our game as well. I don't know how far they'll lean in that direction, but that's going to be a fascinating storyline. I think the aggression aspect of Inter's game will be fascinating because they have to be aggressive to a limit. Thinking about the opening 15 minutes of, of this game, uh, the second leg, Milan get the one chance through Brahim Diaz that definitely should have done better. Sorry, Joe, but I'm saying it. Uh, and and he doesn't. But I think a huge part of, aside from that, of Milan struggling to create is that Inter won everything. They won every long ball. They were first to every 50-50. They fought for every single, even semi-loose ball or secondary ball. Uh, Giroud up top by himself just started looking more and more frustrated and more and more isolated. And so I think Inter have to have that same 
intensity in trying to win those 50-50s and trying to win those loose balls. At the same time, if they're in a back three, historically, one of the formational ways to limit the effectiveness of that back three is to have one forward because then that back three starts to think, I'm not doing something. I got to go mark somebody. I got to track him. And you start to lose focus on what your defensive positioning needs to be because you're trying to make other plays or close gaps or mark somebody who's open. And I think that's exactly what Manchester City will want Inter to do is have somebody step out when they're not supposed to. And then a runner goes through and now you've got a goal. And so it's being able to be aggressive in the spots that you need to be aggressive, but then not let that aggression take you out or make you sort of overly reliant on it such that you lose your positional shape. It's a really difficult balance. It's one that I think Inzaghi is capable of handling, but I am glad that I'm not in his shoes because it's definitely a tricky one. Uh, very much so. Uh, some some interesting uh, stats for you here, Taylor. This final uh, Istanbul. Hopefully, it's still going to be in Istanbul. This one, if it's not changed for the nineteenth time, it is. An- it really has been like five years in a row, right? It. it I feel like since twenty twenty yeah. at least is when they f- were talking about it. But even mm-hmm. when I was there, I feel like it's like if we hang around for one more year, we'll have a Champions League final, and we left in twenty thirteen. And it's still, for political reasons, potentially maybe not even happening in a couple of weeks' time as well. We shall see. There is a runoff, isn't there? Indeed. Indeed. From, uh, yeah, let's not get into that. Uh, So final, (laughs) potentially in Istanbul, English team versus an Italian team. A Milan team with an Inzaghi. Uh, We've got English team managed by a Spanish coach. 2005 vibes. What do you think? One of the teams goes 3-0 up at halftime. Other one comes back. Uh, I think it very much depends on which team is up 3-0 at halftime. <laughs> I think if Inter are up 3-0 at halftime, I'll buy a 3-3 comeback. If City are up 3-0 at halftime, I, I think City are up by a couple more than that at full time. Yeah, good stuff. I, I stole those stats from Reddit, by the way. Thank you to whoever ah. uh, put those there. But I thought it was interesting parallels. I'm really looking forward to this final. But it's just, Joe, it's just so hard to look past Man City breezing it for me. And I'm... I know Inter can put a challenge up here. I know they got a solid backline and whatnot, but I'm sorry. I feel like this one is a tricky one to call in Inter's favor. Yeah, no, it is. It's really yeah. hard to get there. I'm not there. I don't think you're there. I don't think Taylor's there. Like it, it seems very clear to everybody with eyes. I would imagine Inter <laughs> included that they're the underdogs in this game, that City are the wide favorites. What I will say is I think every year we fall into the trap of thinking like, oh, it's the final. Like, what a game this is going to be. And it's almost always so bad. Like, yeah. the game is, is almost always so bad. And so, I'll say, you know, we're talking about 3-0 and 3-3 comebacks. Like, if we get that, I'll be thrilled. I'll be shocked, but I'll be thrilled. I think we're in for a very tight game. I think we are most likely going to see Inter. I think we're going to see them defend deep. I want to be clear about Inter, though. They're not just like this sit deep Atleti style team like Italy Italian soccer still gets characterized that way and and Milan kind of are that in a lot of ways Inter are not like you wouldn't bat an eye if you saw them wear Man City colors in some respects like you wouldn't really bat an eye if you saw them wearing you know blue and, and red stripes like Barcelona they play like a lot of the elite teams in the world right now and they're really good like just because folks haven't watched as much of them and I've watched a decent amount of them this season like you should expect them to want to play with the ball whether or not they will something I was just talking about is a different matter but it's not just like this team is stodgy and and you know gonna get stuck in and, and they might do those things and they probably should if they want to compete but like this team can play real soccer the challenge is 
I, I don't think they can play it at Man City's level. So it, it it's hard to find a reality. Not that there aren't some, but it's hard to find them where Inter are lifting that trophy. Yeah, you make a good point, Joe, about uh, keep managing our expectations about the quality of the final as well. I'm trying to remember the last like good final. Was it was it 99, Taylor? I'm not sure what the last... I'm actually, actually, Inter's one in 2010 over Bayern Munich was pretty good, I think, actually. Maybe maybe it was that far away, but usually they are pretty terse, pretty tense. Probably one of the ones that Real Madrid won. I don't know. I can't remember yeah. how many they won. The bail, the bail goal? Like, is, mm. that not, is that not the iconic moment? Is that not his like, crowning achievement? That was pretty good. That was That's pretty, pretty good. good. Was that 2014, Joe, 2015 around then? I yeah. You were asking Goldfish Brain. Yeah. Uh, I got nothing for you on that one. <laughs> Joe... You are correct to point out, like, we shouldn't just go into stereotypes. There's a big butt coming here. Uh, and I shouldn't just, hey, like, like rely on the idea that it, like, an Italian team is going to be more solid defensively. I will say my understanding of the Italian league historically is that it's, it's like there's less of a, like, when, when I think Real Madrid used to get dinged for being a counterattacking team at one point under Mourinho, and, like, that's not the way Real Madrid are supposed to play. That's not the identity of this team. I feel like Italian clubs, to my understanding, are, are more, like, their 101 introductory courses to football are more defensive, and so I feel like stronger teams can switch more readily into a defensive game plan that still allows for attacking. It's like their their native language is defending, and then they can also minor in attack. And that's where I, I do think Inter have s- somewhat more of a chance than I think I'm in, like most will be inclined to give them, even I'm inclined to give them. It's just that I think there is more familiarity with defensive structure, with defensive uh, ideology. So I think that leaves them in a position to frustrate City and pose more problems or make City think more about how they're going to find a way through. With that then said, like we're looking at a potential midfield. If Mkhitaryan comes back in, uh, he was injured and subbed out right before halftime. But like that central midfield of Mkhitaryan, Chalanolu, and Barella, to your point, very technical, very creative, very capable of stringing some passes together and finding very strong, very capable attackers. So there is plenty of attacking spirit to Inter, my assumption, though, is that they will spend that first 10 minutes trying not to get blitzed and down 2-0 inside 15 minutes, which I think would be pretty smart. You don't want to be down 2-0 in the first 15 minutes in a Champions League final if you can avoid it. Indeed, that is a suboptimal situation. Uh, there we go. Champions League semis review to summarize the episode. Man City, good. Inter, good, but not as good as Man City. CBS, good. Graham, release the tapes. There we go. Thank you very much. Taylor Rockwell, thank you for your contributions as always. Thank you very much, my friend. You good, too. Oh, you shouldn't have. Joe Lowry. I was talking to to Joe. Uh, Oh, thanks, Taylor. No, I was talking to Ryan, but Joe, you're good too. (laughs) We're all good. Joe, thank you very much, sir. Right back at you, Ryan. Graham, come back soon, please. We miss you, please. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Listener, thank you the mostest uh, for joining us on this feed, as always. We'll be back very shortly, but for now, bye. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.